The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. This is Back on Air, and I am your host, Jared Lipscomb, and welcome. This is a show about cancer, but it's also not. It's about coping, but it's also not. It's about pop culture, but it's also not. It's about beauty and so much more. But the overarching theme is second chances. Now, I'm not talking about cheesy. This is my second chance at life and love and happiness, although there will be some of that. But this is the nitty gritty. Let's get real and talk about setbacks. What happens when you're so low, you got nowhere else to go and how we can eventually overcome them. Now, people face setbacks every single day, whether it's something common like like a hangover or something, you know, heart-wrenching like a breakup or something extreme like getting publicly shamed or facing life and death. Now, I'm no expert, but let's just say I have a little experience in the field of setback, second chances, and starting over. For so long, the media has always embraced the narrative of a comeback. You know, whether it's an actor or an athlete or especially a pop star, but we forget the in-between. We forget to look at what comes with coming back and all that that entails. And now we're going to examine it. So to kick things off, I'm going to give you the full breakdown of why I'm an unofficial expert on this matter. Now, to put it bluntly, in the summer of 2019, I was diagnosed with leukemia. But that wasn't the start of my whole process of setbacks. It started a couple of months earlier in June. I started to notice these symptoms that were just making me feel like crap, whether it'd be a migraine one day or just a speedy heart rate when I'm like walking upstairs carrying my makeup kit. And the thing was, I was at the cliche best in my life that I've ever been. I was finally able to pay my bills as an adult, pay my telephone bills. I was able to have disposable income, live in a nice place. I had been in a relationship for three years with a guy who I thought we were really going somewhere. We had adopted a rescue dog with special needs. And my career was really a dream. I was working with people that I had watched on television and really building a name for myself as a celebrity makeup artist in Los Angeles. But with these weird little side effects I was having between the migraines and the heart racing and just not feeling well, I started to get worried. It really reached a peak when I had to fly to Kentucky for my friend and dear client, Brittany Cartwright, wedding to Jax Taylor, which was filmed for the show Vanderpump Rules. Now, while I was there in Kentucky, we had a great time, but I would notice at the end of the night, you know, when I was done glamming and going to the events with everyone and socializing, I would get back to my hotel room and feel really, really bad, just shitty. And I was able to get through that weekend and we had a great time. But by the time I got on the flight home, I was not feeling my best. When I finally landed back in LA, it was a Sunday or early Monday, and I said, I need to go straight to the urgent care. I was feeling like my chest was tight. I was getting these pains when I would breathe, all these weird symptoms that seemed very much to, to align with like a respiratory illness, you know? So I went to a doctor, and they, they didn't really do anything. They just kind of listened to my uh, lungs and said, oh, you have probably pneumonia. Here's some whatever they gave me, antibiotics, whatever they give for pneumonia. Rest up, do what you need to do. So I took a couple of days off and would start going back to work. 
Then it just got worse and worse. The headaches became more frequent. The racing heart became more frequent. And all of these weird little things that I've never dealt with before became more frequent. Full disclosure, I am a hypochondriac, fully a hypochondriac. I have gone through this cycle of thinking I'm very sick my entire life. It's not the healthiest mindset. It's borderline obsessive compulsive the way I believe my health. It can be triggered by me saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. And I don't know why this phobia lives within me, but I always go to the worst case scenario. So when people are saying, say stuff to me like, oh, you got to trust your gut instinct. I'm like, you don't understand. I cannot trust my gut instinct because it will tell me the worst. It'll say, you're dying. You need to check into a, a hospital and get your brain examined. And it really spirals out of control. So I have to manage this kind of side of myself that I know with these very real symptoms that I'm dealing with. So eventually I start going to see doctors. I see specialists for the migraines. I see specialists for the stomach issues because at this point I'm not being able to eat like I normally am. I'm not able to drink water like I normally am without it not sitting well in my stomach. My normal life is starting to get disrupted. But with the healthcare system that it is, I had to go from doctor to doctor to doctor, all with different specialized fields. And in between these visits, I would go work a job and get so sick after working 12 hours on a job that I would have to go to the emergency room. And no one knows this. I would leave a job for, say, like shooting Vanderpump rules, and I would leave and drive myself to an emergency room, get checked in, and complain of whatever illness was going to get me in fast enough, whether it be my heart racing or the extreme migraine or whichever symptom was the most severe, I would bring that up and they would admit me, get me fluids, and I would always feel better after fluids. So I thought this has to be some form of extreme dehydration. I mean, I was making all sorts of shit up in my head of what could possibly be wrong with me. But this never ended. The cycle did not end. I would do this at least once every two weeks. I would be finishing up work or a long day going to the emergency room to get fluids. That's not normal. Things were really rough. I had lost 30 pounds in about a three-week, four-week period. So by the end of August, I was seeing one of my many specialists. And I think she was an ear, nose, and throat doctor. I'd just been referred to her like I was referred to so many else. And she finally got real with me and said, you know, this really sounds like it could be an infectious disease. She's like, have you been traveling at all? You know, it's summertime. Maybe you've traveled out of the country. And I'm like, well, I, I went to Kentucky, you know. And she's like, well, you never know. Like, you're not a nature boy. And I said, well, that's, that's for sure. You know, she thought maybe I got bit by something being out in the wilds of Kentucky, even though I went from hotel to the castle and back to my hotel and just, you know, wasn't really out in nature at all. But you know, benefit of the doubt, sure. So she said, I would just go to a really well respected, but also expensive emergency room, you know, like a university hospital or a big hospital, you know, the ones that have, you know, where celebrities give birth on the on the top floor, and they have suites for, you know, celebrity clients, like those types of hospitals, big ones that do research and have all the equipment needed for anything. So I said, okay, so I left that appointment and just drove to the closest of the big three hospitals here in Los Angeles. And I went to the emergency room and I told them my symptoms. And so they saw me back in the ER and did some blood tests and I waited for that. And I wasn't so worried because I was like, okay, finally, I'm going to get this resolved in a couple of days and I'll be back to my normal self. Like they're going to give me an antibiotics or, you know, whatever this infection is, they're going to figure it out. Well, then they came in and said, we need to get another sample of your blood. And I started to get a little nervous. And they said, we're also going to admit you to like our annex, like our ER annex. So it wasn't a private room, but it was definitely like 
not the in and out ER part. Like they, they moved my, they rolled me up to a second floor and put me in this room with maybe 12 other people in one shared bathroom, but with like little curtains separating you waiting to see what's next. So I sat there for a day and I started to get more and more nervous. And then the next day I was met by some hematologists, which are blood doctors and an oncologist and which is a cancer doctor. And I was very shocked to see a cancer or hear that the words a cancer doctor was even coming in. And this was the first time since I had these symptoms. And since I've been to any hospitals that someone even mentioned the possibility of cancer. So of course, I immediately panicked. And they said to not panic, this could be so many other things. This could be Lyme disease. This could be, like I said, an infectious disease. There's so many other options. So I, 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 but still because of my hypochondriac tendencies, I freaked out. So I called my mom in hysterics and said, I am losing it. They're, they're bringing up cancer. And my mom is a rock and a very intelligent person, but even she knew something was up. So she, she booked a flight and, and was on the next red eye to uh, California from Florida And she got there the next morning and found me in my little ER annex. And she was there when they came in and confirmed the worst news that a 31-year-old could get, which was, you do in fact have cancer. It's acute myeloid leukemia, which is an aggressive form of leukemia, which is formed in your bone marrow and then goes from your bone, bone marrow into your bloodstream. And it usually affects people who are 65 plus. So this is a mind boggling thing. We cannot believe this is real life. So of course, I'm sobbing and I'm wondering the biggest question of all, am I going to die? And of course, my mom, who has to juggle dealing with hearing this news about her child and trying to calm me down, but also trying to get the facts. And I'm in full hysterics. I mean, I I am a high anxiety person. Things set me off easily. I'm easily bothered. So I knew immediately because I've worked a lot of odd jobs and one of them was in a pharmacy. And I knew immediately I needed to have some sort of medicinal drip going through this body to calm me down. And it didn't help that I also had a speeding heart rate, which turned out was a side effect of leukemia because my blood cells were just not doing their job. So my heart was beating at, I want to say like 150. It was my resting heart rate. And just to put it in perspective, a normal resting heart rate, I think they say is between like 60 and 80. So needless to say, my heart rate was through the roof. I was freaking out. So they quickly put me on a anti-anxiety drip and that helped in that moment. And we'll come back to being in the moment in just a moment. But my mom was there. So we started to kind of process that she stepped away with the doctors and kind of figured out what does this mean? What what does this look like for someone who's been diagnosed with this aggressive form of leukemia? And we just got the facts. And it was you're going to start chemo in about a week. And you're not leaving this hospital, you are officially admitted. And that day that I got diagnosed, I was taken to the blood cancer ward, they have a very safe, secure ward, because when you're dealing with chemo, especially blood cancer chemos, you get very low immunity. So they have to keep you in the hospital for an extended period of time, while your immunity goes away because of the chemo. And you have to wait for it to build back up before you get released. So I realized real quick, this wasn't just a couple days to get my malaria or my black plague under control. This was going to be a long process. So I don't remember specific things, which is so funny about trauma and dealing with these kinds of things. You don't remember 
every aspect of it. I don't remember them saying you have cancer. I don't remember that at all. I remember my reaction. I remember sobbing hysterically. I remember asking, am I going to die? Is this it? Like, is this goodbye for me? Like, do I need to, you know, start writing my will in my notes app of my phone? And I did what any good millennial does. And I (laughs) drafted up something in my uh, notes app and posted it on Instagram because I just couldn't believe it. And I needed to process it. And I needed you know, support. I wanted support for my friends, but I didn't want to have to like do a, like, imagine how awkward a group text that would be to just like, Hey guys, like, I hope you're doing well. Haven't talked to you in a couple of days. Like, by the way, I have leukemia, obviously to my closest best friends and stuff. I did, you know, send a message before that happened. But for the majority of people that I knew, I just was like, I just have to post this on social media because I can't deal with explaining this to people over and over and over again. So I posted that on social media and they, you know, I'm in my, my room with the cancer team and I have to start the traumatic process of accepting that I'm getting chemo. And so now I have the fear of the cancer, the fear of death, and now I have the fear of chemo added on. So what I'm trying to say is like these setbacks kept piling up. And so it felt like I could never really fully grasp for anything. I couldn't get, I couldn't catch my breath because the next thing I knew something else was happening. And for me, like I said, high anxiety. So even when they had to insert the IV, the semi-permanent IV into my arm, which by the way, is technically a painless procedure. And I've had it done since this first time I've had it done three times and it's never once hurt. But the first time when they explained to me that they have to put a tube into my arm and have it go to the valves of my heart. So that way, like my chemo can reach my system in a safer way than just a normal IV. Even that process of getting that tube put into me was traumatizing. It was just a series of trauma over trauma over trauma. And then I had to worry about how am I going to handle chemo? Like what's chemo like? You know, my main questions were, am I going to feel it? Am I going to be instantly sick? And am I going to be instantly bald? And you don't feel it as it's happening. It makes you sick gradually. You don't lose your hair instantly. It takes a couple of weeks, so almost a month before it starts falling out. So I did the buzz cut right when I got there. They, of course, have the clippers on hand. And one of the nurses buzzed my head for me because they said it can be painful to lose your hair if it's long. So I decided just to clip it off and get a buzz cut and just let the follicles fall out. And so I sat there and had my whole family with me when I did my first round of chemo. And it was the very, very intense chemo. It's called induction chemo. And it's intense and it's scary. And it is, it makes you feel like shit. I could only eat about a half of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich a day. And that was by forcing it down. I mean, forcing it down my throat. Like it was disgusting. I can't eat a peanut butter and jelly to this day, but it was all I could eat for that almost 40 day stay. Obviously near the end, I started to get my appetite back. So it wasn't as extreme, but it was a process. And during this time, I had my family by my side and I could not sleep at the hospital alone. So they my bless my family's hearts, my mom, my dad, my sister, my brother, uh, my grandmas, they would come and rotate shifts and fly out at different times, you know, so my mom could go back to work. So then my dad would fly out for a week and my brother lives in Los Angeles. So he would stay a lot with me. My sister was pregnant with our first baby in the family at the time. So she was, you know, trying to balance being pregnant and also coming to see me because our our lives were just upended by this scary, traumatic thing, this, this ultimate setback that you just are not expecting at the age of 31, especially when everything is going so great. It is just comes out of left field. 
So real quickly, you learn that processing is not going to happen. I did not process my diagnosis until probably a year and a half later, to be quite frank about it. And my main focus at the beginning was just, am I going to die? Every time my doctor came in, he would go over the statistics and it was kind of confusing because he was a little bit hot and he could have even been like a year younger than me or a year older than me. But like he was very hot. I do remember that. And he would go over these very factual statistics. And I get it. They're doctors. That is their job. Like they are just here to state state the facts. And he would say, you know, it's 50-50 um, survival rate typically. But because you're young, we're going to add another 10%. And because you're in a healthy weight division and have no pre-existing conditions, we're going to add another, you know, 5% here and then another 5% because of this. And so ended up my chances of survival were 70, 30, which are pretty obviously good odds. But all I heard was 70, 30. And I'm thinking back to like high school and college and thinking, wait, that's a C. That's a C. That's not even a C plus. That's barely a C. That's almost a D. And you're telling me like my life is in the hands of a C an average C grade. Oh my gosh, I freaked out. So I harassed that poor doctor. They come in every day, multiple times a day, doing their rounds, checking on you, obviously with the nursing team and stuff, frequent your room all the time. But the doctors come once or twice a day. You know, the only thing he would say after everything, any questions, and I would ask the same question for the first two weeks, am I going to die? Am I going to die? Am I going to die? I almost made it a joke because I was staying very medicated. And I knew that about myself that I needed to be medicated, which is why when people will reach out to me for, you know, like, what do you recommend? Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm lucky and unlucky that I get to connect with so many people. It's unlucky because it sucks that this is the way we're connecting is because they've been diagnosed with something similar and have to get a bone marrow transplant or they have leukemia or lymphoma or a blood cancer and they can relate to the the issues of it. So that's the the downside. The positive side is I get to connect with all these people and I get to share my what I learned when I went through it. And of course because of my connection with working, you know, with Bravo and with my friend Chriselle and all of these people it did get more traction on little articles would pop up. And so it is nice to feel like even through all of this like insanity that's happening and like this fully no control, I have no control and I'm a control freak. I want to control every aspect of this situation and I can't control a single bit of it. But to know that I can somehow be I don't even know if I'm like a form of hope for someone, but just knowing that sharing my story or like just not even me sharing it, just that my story's out there for people to see provided some sort of relief saying, at least this won't be all in vain. So I finally get to the point where my doctor's like, you got to stop asking me if you're going to die every day. Like it's not good for your mental health. So they brought in, you know, a psychiatrist from the hospital. We got on some antidepressants. We got a better anti-anxiety medicine. I was also dealing with pain medicine because of the extreme pain that happens with chemo. It just affects your bones and your muscles. It's just like aches and pains all over the place. And so I was heavily medicated. And so I remember the final time I asked my doctor, I was, you know, kind of giddy, just probably high as a kite, but just being like, doc, tell, give it to me, you know, slurring, give it to me straight, doc. Am I going to die? And he finally broke. I finally broke the guy. And he said, Jared, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. And I was like, <gasps> just hearing him say that, that was all I needed to get me through the next couple of days. 
And they were hard days. There's no sugarcoating it. It is shitty as fuck. It sucks so bad. But you have these little moments where you get these little, I don't even want to say it's a light at the end of the tunnel. I want to say it's like a flicker of a refraction of light from the end of the tunnel that's getting like refracted through a mirror somehow and you just see this glimmer of light because I can't see the end yet like I'm in the thick of things I don't see the I don't see a light at the end of the tunnel I'm seeing reflections from the light at the end of the tunnel that's how deep we are in this metaphorical tunnel that I apparently can't shut the fuck up about so I'm in deep my family's processing it they did a great job of not putting any of the pressure on me I did not listen to a single thing any medical professional told me During that time, I had to sign over a lot of my rights, like power of attorney and stuff. I chose to sign it over to my mom because I did not want to hear the risk factors. I did not want to hear the chances. I did not want to hear. I had heard the 70, 30. That's all I needed to hear. And for the rest of the time, I put headphones in. And so I know that's a luxury for me that I, I I know the privilege that comes with having a family who supports me so much that they're willing to take on the burden of all this heavy diagnosis while I got my morphine drip and chilled by chill. I mean, not chill at all, but you know, not tried to make myself as incoherent as possible for as frequently as possible. So I did not have to think of the impending doom and death that was facing me. And I feel like unless you've gone through a trauma, it's so hard to understand the feeling of like, wow, my life really could end. It's a scary thought. And it's something we just don't think about on the regular, on a regular basis. And we shouldn't think about on a regular basis. And it's not fair because no one should have to face this kind of fear of death. No one should have to feel this feeling. It's, it's a very scary feeling and it's very isolating and it's very worrisome. And it causes a lot of stress and it causes a lot of it just causes a lot of fear and, and pain. But something clicked at some point. And it was right around the time I was starting to get a lot of gifts. And a lot of the gifts were aimed towards, you know, I'm a strong fighter, warrior. I've got this. I'm going to kick cancer's ass. I'm going to beat its ass. I'm going to, you know, fuck cancer. And I do believe in those sentiments. And I do believe that those that mindset helps a lot of people. And I am not knocking the you are stronger mindset. I believe in that for a lot of people. For my personality, that did not take. When someone would come in like a nurse trying to give me like a generic pep talk, like you got this, you just have to keep fighting. She would leave the room and I would turn to my mom and sob because I didn't feel like a fighter. My body had been ravished by chemo. I was destroyed. And during this whole process to add another layer of a setback to just beat you while you're down, my boyfriend of three years decided to end our relationship. Now, at the moment, that was the most devastating thing that had happened up until this time. I had now forgotten about my cancer and was now reeling from this unexpected breakup. Of course, hindsight is everything. And I look back and say, oh, we were not meant for each other. We were clearly having problems long before I was diagnosed with this horrific illness. His timing was a little, you know, a little suspect breaking up with your partner of three years, two months after they get a cancer diagnosis to each their own. We clearly were not meant to be together. And now I look back and I'm so thankful that he did end it when he did, because I would not have wanted him a part of this journey up until this point, only to break it off when I was better. 
because now I have this story of my journey of my cancer recovery and everything that happened is so much more positive and succinct. It involves people that I love and people that have really been there for me every step of the way from the beginning till right now as I as as you listen to this in February of 2021. So I'm glad to not have had that. But it was a it was a hard blow to deal with in the time. Now it was also a weird little perk because I was no longer thinking about my cancer. I was thinking about this heart pain that I was having. And I was distracted by that for several months. So it was actually in a weird, twisted way, some sort of benefit that it distracted me from the fear that I was facing about my untimely death that I still was convinced was going to happen. It was still a shitty move on my ex-boyfriend's part. Do not get me wrong. But now that I look back, I say, you know what? I am glad to have had that distraction. And yes, it was another thing that knocked me down. I felt like I could not go any lower. I mean, I was looking for any sign of positivity. And then they said, you know, you need a bone marrow transplant to basically beat this aggressive form of leukemia. And once again, I cannot thank my mom enough. She dealt and handled with the inner workings of the bone marrow transplant world. And basically what it is, is they test people in your family. And if you are a match, a genetic match with a certain amount of genetic markers, they will give you this bone marrow transplant and the person who donates their blood, it, it's just like a blood donation. It takes a little bit longer, but they just donate their blood and the, the scientists are able to remove the stem cells and then put them inside of me. And the new healthy stem cells from a donor will take over my blood cell system and beat the cancer system and reflourish with this new donor's stem cells, curing my cancer ultimately. Now, they had to test my family and so many people, my friends, we did, you know, drives. And it got really scary again, because another thing you can't control is wondering if someone's going to be your match. I will say my doctor gave me a lot of hope with the finding a match and said it's very common to find a match. And there is a lot of inequality with finding bone marrow matches. And in general, this is very sad that white people are, you know, 70% likely to find a match, whereas Black people are only 20-something percent able to find a match. This is all from the Be The Match official registry, which I'm a proud ambassador for Be The Match. So don't fact check me on the exact numbers, but it's somewhere in that ballpark that there is a big discrepancy with different people of ethnic backgrounds because you are matching their genetic markers, which is why I will just do a quick aside and say, it is so important to sign up for Be The Match, and please, I urge you to do so. That being said, I was continuing my treatment, continuing healing from this broken heart, And then I finally found out the news. The doctor came in and said, we finally found your match. He's German. He's 28. That's all we can tell you. He doesn't know anything about you. They're not allowed to tell the person who's going to donate anything about me. They couldn't tell him like this is life or death because you can't be coerced into doing it. it has to be a voluntary thing. And thank God this young man who saved my life, who I hope to meet one day, I think it's a two year rule after my transplant. He selflessly did this. I can't, I can't believe it happened. And that Friday, March 6th, I was checked in. March 6, 2020, mind you. I was checked in for my transplant. And we start that first week of more chemo, more radiation, getting you prepared for the transplant because they have to knock out all my cancerous cells one final time before they put in this new donation. Well, my transplant date is March 13th, 2020, Friday the 13th. Seems pretty unlucky. But 
I was like, this is kind of cool. I'm going to, on the Friday the 13th, my life is going to be changed. I'm going to have my comeback. Here it comes. You know, I'm getting my, my second chance. I'm starting over. And then a little news story got bigger and bigger and bigger. And on March 12th, the night that my donation is being flown from Germany to America, to California, news of the coronavirus being so widespread that a travel ban is about to be put in place. So I had to, the night before my transplant, had to sit there and wait to wonder if my bone marrow stem cells were going to actually even be able to make it to America as things start shutting down globally. Miraculously, I woke up on Friday the 13th and they came in and said, it's here. The product, which I think is so funny that it's called the product, but they said, it's here. It's arrived. We were so excited. My mom was with me. My whole family came up for the transplant. And we waited and it's a very non-event. It's just a blood transfusion. So it just drips into me and then it starts to do its thing. And my parents left for the night and the next day, no more visitors were allowed. Coronavirus was so scary and so bad that no one was allowed in the hospital for the safety of other cancer patients on the floor, for the safety of health workers that were there. So we were in full shutdown. So I then spent the next 30 to 40 days recovering from my bone marrow transplant, which is very similar to the transplant of a heart or a lung or any other type of organ. It's the same type of medication and it's the same kind of process where you can reject the transplant. It's all the same very scary type of situation. And they monitor it for very strictly for 100 days. So I spent the first 40 days in the hospital, you know, and it was up and down. There were times when I couldn't eat. I don't remember a lot of the bad times. I know I had one day of extreme pain when his stem cells were really taking over my bone marrow and I could feel it in my bones and I could feel it in every bone of my body. That's not an exaggeration from my fingertips into my femurs and tibulas and fibias and amphibians and all of it. I could feel every last bone aching. So I got through it somehow. And once I got that transplant, things shifted. I noticed I was no longer obsessing over my death, but thinking, okay, like I still need this transplant to stick. I need this transplant to not reject. For the love of God, don't reject transplant. For the love of Britney Spears, don't reject me transplant. And it started to get a little bit better. And then all of a sudden, I wasn't just seeing refracted light from an invisible end of the tunnel. I could see it, the glimmer. And it was just a little bit, you know, just a little bit. I thought, oh my God, am I going to do this? Am I going to actually make it this far and survive? I did my 40 days and I was picked up from my family. And that's when the reality of the pandemic really hit. I was locked away. I wasn't watching news. I was watching Hulu and passing out. So this new reality that I was welcomed into was startling to say the least. I was not aware of the severity of the coronavirus. I mean, I knew it was severe that they weren't bringing people into the hospital, but I thought, well, we all have weakened immune systems. You wouldn't even have someone who has the flu come in. So it makes sense with a virus, but I just didn't really realize. And at this point, my parents had moved to Los Angeles temporarily to help me with my recovery. But then with the pandemic, they were forced to stay. Luckily, we had found a really great apartment that's suitable for all of our living needs. You know, I have my space and my own bathroom because it's there's all these rules after you get a transplant with cleanliness. Like I wasn't supposed to share the bathroom with anyone. I wasn't supposed to, you know, I was supposed to have a place with no carpet. So we were able to find all of this kind of like checklist of things that I needed for my apartment 
awesome. And I'm delighted to live with my parents. They're actually awesome. And we've gotten so close and have enjoy- enjoyed, you know, our time together. But in these first 100 days after transplant, I needed them for things as simple as like getting out of bed, I would take like two to three naps a day, I had to do 30 minutes of activity. And that activity included walking to the bathroom. I mean, that's how severe it was. It was like, you need to be moving for 30 minutes. And this can include walking from your bed to the couch, like any movement you can do, you have to do. Well, then I got one of the tests that I had to get done a routine thing to check to see where I'm at. And I was in remission. And that was a sigh of relief. And then the big test was had my bone marrow disappeared and had my donors bone marrow taken over. And what a sigh of relief when I got the results for that test. It was like a two-week waiting period. And when they said, it's 100%, the donor has taken over 100% of your blood system, (sighs) the sigh of relief that I felt. And I looked at that tunnel, and it wasn't just a glimmer. I could see the end. Now, mind you, I was still engulfed in a tunnel, but I could see it for the first time. And I have never once identified as a warrior or or as a fighter. I had never felt strong. And I still, to this day, am battling with strength of walking up the stairs, of my muscles having come back from being atrophied from so much time in bed. And I just knew that this was the turning point. And so all of a sudden, I went from standing and doing stuff 30 minutes a day to 35 minutes. And then I was able to go walk outside at full speed for 15 minutes, which was just walking, but for me was a lot. And it snowballed. I'm starting to plan this podcast. I was, you know, with my executive producer texting her saying like, I think this is something that we could explore. And I started to connect more with people. And of course, this would be the time when had there been no pandemic, I would have started having visitors again to come see me and I would have been able to go eat at a restaurant during downtimes. And um, I would have been still wearing masks. Uh, And even if you go fact check my Instagram, I was wearing masks out and about in January because of just being immunocompromised. So things were starting to get normal-ish for me physically. I was just starting to feel like all of a sudden one day I didn't need to take a nap, which was huge. I had been napping for every day since June of 2019. And now we're in the middle of 2020, about a year later, and I'm like, I don't need to nap anymore. And it just continued to get better. And then I started to document more on social media about my journey because I thought, fuck it. Like, yes, I do makeup, but like, I'm not doing makeup right now. The world's kind of shut down. I'm going to share my story. I'm going to share the the good news, which is like, I'm in remission and I'm doing great. And I'm going to share the hard parts. Like I get PTSD. I can't take a a shower right now. I can only take baths right now because of the, the trauma induced from having to take showers at the hospital when I was so weak and almost would fall over and have to have several nurses come and bring in a chair and prop me up and help wash me. That kind of stuff changes how you view things, that kind of level of relying on someone else. And I do just want to say shout out to nurses. They are the heart and soul of the medical field. They would provide for me the comfort that I was looking for from doctors, you know, because I wanted my doctor to say, you're going to be all right. But I would get that from the nurses, especially when my family wasn't able to visit when I was checked in during the pandemic. And my only visitors were these nurses that I would see so regularly. And they became my friends. I still talk to them and text them at least once a week because they're such amazing people. And I'm forever, you know, grateful and indebted to the work they do. 
Anyways, this is all to say I was given these setbacks one after the other after the other. And then sometimes it wasn't even a setback. It would just be like, oh, now we're waiting for your your donor. Oh, we found a donor. Oh, it turns out he was only a 70% match. We're looking for a 100% match. Oh, we found an 80% match. So it was just this roller coaster. So I would get my hopes up and then they would get crashed. And then that's when I realized, got to stop living in this waiting for what's next and try my damnedest to live in this very moment. And it is not an easy thing to do. When people say be in the moment, be present in this moment, it's easy to do when you're on vacation. It's easy to do when you're front row at a Christina Aguilera concert and she's singing right into your eyes and saying, you know, you're a fighter. Like it's easy to be in the moment in those situations. It's a whole hell of a lot harder to be in the moment and to think about just today and just being content today when you're cooped up in your apartment for the third month without any visitors. The only people you've seen in person are your parents and you can't do anything that you were hoping to do. You know, I had plans. Obviously, if you've followed along with me in any capacity, I love to throw events. I've thrown events for charity. I've done drag events. We even had an event planned at Sur that my dear friends, Brittany and Kristen, and everyone got involved. Ariana, Stassi, Katie, Lala, Sheena, everyone was there supporting me, helping me, and you know, helping me raise money because I also had huge insurance issues, which is another factor that I didn't even have to think about, thank God, because again, my mom took over that aspect of everything. But the point of all of this is to say there was setback after fucking setback. And I thought to myself, when am I going to come back? When am I going to be normal again? And that's when it clicked. There is no switch. It doesn't go from A to B to C for cured. It goes from A to X to Z back to B, then jumps around the alphabet a billion more times. And I'm kind of forgetting what the alphabet is right now, but like A, B, C, D, F, G, you know. So anyways, the point is it's going all over the place. There is no correct way to come back. It's now spring, well, winter, spring of 2021, and I'm still waiting for my comeback. But I realize now in hindsight that my comeback happened the day that I decided to live in the moment and to say, you know, what? I'm not going to worry if I'm going to die next year. I'm going to just worry about getting through this first 100 days of transplant and focusing on walking every day. I'm going to focus on eating the foods that are, you know, packed with the nutrients that I had been lacking because of my limited diet while I got my transplant. I'm going to take these little moments to focus. And that's what happened. And slowly I was able to adapt to this life of having a transplant, being immunocompromised, going to multiple doctor's appointments a week, and surviving it all in a global pandemic. This point of this story is not to say, look how hard my life was. That's not what this show is about at all. What I'm trying to prove is that there's a lot of setbacks that people face in every capacity. And if someone's feeling, quote, better, doesn't mean everything is instantly back to normal. And so when I say, I'm back, you might say, from which aspect are you back from? Like, you're still, you know, in recovery. You had a breakup. You were never even here to begin with. You know, like, what do you mean you're back on air? This is the first time I'm hearing you in the interweb airwaves. And that's okay. I'm not here to define what starting over is. All I know is having to start over is not easy. It's the myth of the comeback. It's the myth that you're going to have this debutante reintroduction into society. It's the fact that you have to relearn how to do your job. I can't even apply eyeliner or eyelashes 
right now on other people because my medicines make my hand shaky. So the thing is, when you have to begin again, everything is tricky. Everything is turned upside down. But this show is going to explore all examinations and all facets of facing a setback, being at your lowest point, crawling your way out of the bottom of the barrel to see the light, to come back. I want to talk to people who've had traumatic experiences. I want to talk to people who've had simple experiences. I want to talk to people who've been canceled. We're going to cover it all. And I just want to say thank you so much for letting me speak to you and for listening to my story. I just wanted to give you a backstory on how I ended up here and how I am, very heavy air quotes, unofficial expert on setbacks, starting over and coming back. We're going to cover every little last thing when it comes to starting over. And I hope you will join me on this journey. And I will see you very soon. Back on Air is a production of Embassy Row. Our executive producer is Sarni Rogers. This episode was produced by Alexa Machia and Anna Marie Johnson. The show is edited by Maureen Bigas. The theme music is by Josie Mark. Thanks for listening. And please follow me on Instagram at Jared Lips, on Twitter at Jared M. Lips, and email the show backonairjared at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe anywhere you stream podcasts, and I'll see you next week.